Welcome to the DevOps Diversity Podcast, the all-inclusive place to talk people, process, and technology for enterprise transformation and modernization. I'm your host, Connor Dellenbank, and this podcast is brought to you by Strategio, where I have the pleasure of leading as the CEO and founder. Strategio's mission is to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion for underrepresented and underserved groups in enterprise IT. Through our talent creation as a service model, we help early career talent break into tech, while creating fresh talent for high growth organizations in the most in-demand technology skills, including cloud and DevOps, software engineering, site reliability engineering, and QA test automation. If you're looking to break into tech, or if you're looking for a new strategy to increase DE&I while fighting the war on talent, connect with us at info at Today, I'm here with Jasmine James. Jasmine is a senior engineering manager at Twitter, leading the developer experience pillar in the engineering effectiveness organization. Prior to Twitter, she worked at Delta Airlines, enabling cloud-native application development by providing modern tooling and capabilities utilizing open source projects. Jasmine has delivered multiple keynotes at various technology conferences focused on her experience during the last decade, both as an engineer and as a leader. Jasmine lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm really excited to welcome her here today. So, hey, Jasmine, thank you so much for joining me. And how are you doing today? I am doing fantastic, Connor. Thanks for asking. How are you? Yeah, all, all good over here as well. Thank you. It's, uh, we were just having a, a brief chat offline and just sharing the, it's, it's an exciting time, a, a busy time. And it's, it's uh, the growth of, of Strategio is, uh, is kind of, uh, it's exploding more than I, I maybe originally thought, but it's a, it's a good problem to have and a problem that I'm sure you face um, a lot of the time as well, kind of scaling, trying to deliver quality, trying to make sure you continue to execute while you also uh, grow with the pace of the company that you're in. Yeah, it's definitely a, a balance. Um, but like we spoke about, you know, the message and like what you're doing is so important. Um, it's it's just a very worthy cause, right, to be behind and growing and scaling so quickly. So uh, bravo for all the work that you all are doing. That, thank you. And and more so less about me and more about you, because I'm excited that to, to have you on, on, on the show today. Um, you've obviously had a, a really exciting career and, and you've grown very quickly, um, you know, solved many problems, uh, you know, have supported teams, supported your own career. Um, and I think it's time we, we just jump straight in and learn a bit more about uh, your journey. So tell us, uh, you're, you're in an amazing position today. How have you got to this point where you're working at Twitter, the type of teams you're working with? What has got you to that point and kind of what was that journey looking like? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this question, I kind of figured, you know, I didn't know how far I should go back. But I think the moment um, in my like childhood and like my early adult life that really sort of set my direction um, was, you know, my mom being an entrepreneur and seeing her work very, very hard um, to grow her real estate business. Um, and me realizing that maybe I want to do something completely different um, and her buying me my first computer, that, that's really where it all started when I was about 13. Um, and going to a, a high school that had classes around engineering and allowed me to see how a lot of these things that I used every day were being built um, really intrigued me. Um, and all of that resulted in me choosing my direction um, for college, which actually I kind of struggled with initially figuring out, okay, do I want to be like an industrial engineer? There's so many types of engineering, like what exactly do you want to do? 
Um, so I, I settled on computer science. And um, the reason I did is because it, it had a lot of just unknowns to it. it. It was growing so fast and evolving. And I felt like I would always be challenged and there would always be sort of this next thing I could explore. Um, and that was really attractive to me. Um, so fast forward to graduating um, from college and going into my first role. I actually worked all through college. Um, and one of the great things about the company I was working with at the time, AT&T, was that they offered this tuition reimbursement program. And in order to participate, you had to sort of like stay with the company after they reimbursed your tuition. Um, so I was fortunate enough to like transition from my role as a sales consultant, you know, pretty much giving folks cell phones and selling plans um, to a quality engineering role in um, their home automation and security arm. So that was really, really um, a really smooth transition for me, um, which I, it was a real big blessing. Um, so that role was kind of where it all started, um, coding quality engineering um, scripts to test their home automation apps and, and solutions on mobile web applications. Um, went into a sysadmin role after that at Delta Airlines, which is where I also transitioned into leadership um, of my own team. So yeah, now I'm here at Twitter. The pandemic had a lot of like, you know, curves and twists and I'm, I'm now here at Twitter um, and just got promoted into the senior role. So it's very exciting. Been a, been a great journey, a lot of learning, a lot of growth um, that has occurred. So yeah. Okay, so I've got a few things to unpack here, and uh, and one of them relates to the first point about your mum working hard. So what, what I've seen, and it was it was a great post I saw on LinkedIn the other day. It's like no one uh, no one has determination or drive like someone who saw their parents work hard, and it really hit home for me because I was like, why do I have this innate drive? Like I, I really really push all the time to to improve to grow. Um, and I see that other people around me in the same situation, like who maybe come from a similar situation. It's like maybe their parents just worked hard. I think if they set that example, it's kind of like you don't really you think I've just got to do this. It doesn't mean we have to be doctors, lawyers or even you know top uh, engineers or leaders. It just means that we're going to push in whatever we're doing. But you then doing that in AT&T, for example, working hard in that sales role, working hard to then also get you know, extra qualifications puts you into the next step. And that's not me trying to say that we should be saying hustle, like hustle culture, that's the way to do it. Because we know that, that can be damaging for people's mental health and things like that. But I do think there's an element of to make it, especially as you're going into your 20s, into your early 30s, this period of time where like you don't have any proof that you're actually good at any at much, right? We have to work hard for a period of time, then work smart, network, gain the confidence and gain the experience that then carries us into kind of the mid-level of our career. Yep. Yeah, I, I think that's um, absolutely true. Um, a lot of what caused me to like sustain that, like, you know, just energy to keep going, even though it's not like immediate gratification, it never is, especially for anything like that's worth it, like a long career, um, was seeing my mom build like her company from scratch, like there was nothing, you know, she's had this idea, she started with it, she faced so many challenges but she was able to overcome it by using you know, her smarts, like further educating herself and just seeing that no matter what challenges you face, there is usually always a path that you can take in order to overcome it. And I think that that was instilled with me. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, she, she was like, she helped me so much like navigate this, um, but just seeing her have that mentality and approach to 
ev literally everything um, really helped in those challenging moments that you know, everyone faces in their careers. You know, things aren't going your way. Oh, you know, I, I didn't do so well on my midterm exam in college. And, you know, it was always that, okay, well, what have you learned from this and how can you, you know, prevent it from happening again or, you know, just have a better outcome next time. So having that approach, I think, is what did it. And her being an entrepreneur, I think, gave me a very specific view because entrepreneurs face so much like challenge in implementing something from zero to, you know, something that actually is fruitful. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely beneficial and helped me, you know, get where I am today for sure. That's amazing. So I think that that alone can be a, a good um, thinking point for folks who are earlier in their career trying to get into the tech space or regardless if they get into tech, regardless, thinking about where they want to go. It could be fresh graduate. They could be in a boot camp uh, they might be staying at home, teaching themselves to code right now and thinking like oh, it's such a far away distance. I think it's just important to, to consider those various points. We're talking about resilience, the determination, the perseverance, um, as well as the drive and the motivation it takes to just not worry like, okay, this is hard, but the, the next thing is going to be better. And then I'm at the next thing, but if I keep on going, I'm going to go even further. So it's that nonstop kind of push in the right direction. And then something else that's, um, that's made me think is uh, the, the sales type of role that you did. And there are a lot of folks who get straight into engineering development and, and work in, in these uh, uh, you know, tech roles that we refer to. They maybe don't have that kind of uh, the, the exposure to the customer relation uh, that, that would really help. So in a role like um, working with developer experience and tooling, where I imagine a lot of your own the customers you face now, you and your teams are probably internal developers. Is that, would that, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So you've got internal teams that are you're trying to support, you're trying to enable them to work uh, faster and either maintain or increase the quality of everything they're doing across their entire software development lifecycle. So if, in that scenario, you've got to be able to deal with them as customers. So what does that early career experience at AT&T bring to what you do now? Yeah, I I would say that having um, that direct customer experience um, at that time, you know, cell phones, like they're key to our day to day life. Right. But it was at a point where we were just transitioning from, you know, like iPhones to, you know, these more like um, like sort of like they incorporated your life. So people were just really starting to realize how important they were um, in their day to day activity. So having a part of like selling and, and creating value for customers um, was like my livelihood. Right. I had to sell in order to get commission, in order to be able to, you know, pay for my life, tuition, all those things. And I think that um, that allowed me to become like such a great listener, I think was the number one thing I took away from that experience. Um, because unless you are um, providing a solution that has like value, this customer at that time at at t they could go to somewhere else and get that value. But I wanted them to you know, by what I was like um, selling them. So listening and understanding exactly what motivated them to be there in the first place, what sort of things brought them joy about an experience when it comes to a phone. So becoming a great listener and then equating that to a solution um, was key. And I think that that really, really helps me in my role today, um, listening to exactly what the needs are of the customer, whether or not they're internal. I don't feel like it matters to me. I just want to know what things do you value about your experience and how can it become better um, and then translate that into actual actions for my team to then deliver so that we can improve that experience. So um, definitely transferable skills. Um, and I didn't see it at the, at the time, 
And that's the crazy thing. I was like, you know, I'm going to sell just to like, you know, make money for myself. But here I am doing that same thing, right, for internal customers. So you never know how your journey will equate to like transferable skills into like a new role. Um, so that's why it's important to do the best that you can at what you're doing, right? Even if it's not exactly where you want to be, just continue to like chip away at it. It, it You'll get there. Yeah, exactly. I, I felt exactly the same when I was working in retail. I was working in a store back in the UK uh, when I was 16, like as soon as you're old enough to like legally work there. Um, and I was like, doing that I, I really cared about doing well in this job I would talk about my job afterwards I would try to make the customers as happy as possible and I couldn't perceive the idea of you know a few years later being a CEO and you know being Forbes under 30 you know all these different things that happen in our lives it's like I didn't see that but I did know that in the the the, the ecosystem I was in if I was essentially the high performer or if I was good at what I did and if I provided value to everyone around me then I was only going to move further forward and I didn't really have anyone to, to, to give me that next step it was just on me figuring it out so if you're listening and you're thinking like I'm nowhere near this senior manager at Twitter and I have no idea how to be like that just keep doing the things you're doing that get you there and that that little retail job that seemingly is just paying the bills or paying your tuition could be the thing that gives you a lot of uh, the, the skills that you can transfer to where you get to in, in the future as well. You also mentioned um, working, so at Delta, you were working in systems administration, uh, and we, we call it sysadmin for folks listening, but systems administration is the, the broader word. So that applies a lot and has some, some of the DevOps related skills have stemmed from sysadmin, the way we look at infrastructure and the systems themselves and the tooling, um, and then bringing in more development and engineering skills to doing that is kind of how we've combined it into DevOps now. So what did you gain during that time doing sysadmin work that's got you all, that's also kind of fed into where you are today? Yeah, um, that, that role was a new one for me. Um, so I I started my career with the standard software development, like, you know, background, expecting to go into maybe a full stack developer role, back end engineering role, um, which I did initially do coding at the quality and engineering phase, which, you know, automating scripts, using Selenium, using Java, things like that. So fully transferable. Going to a sysadmin role, I was exposed to the infrastructure, right, which is something that you do take classes for, but it's not something that I dove so deep into because I felt like the more like uh, front-end development, back-end development role was where I wanted to head. Um, so I was tasked with standing up all of these like DevOps tools. And I I was just, wasn't lost, but it was like a new challenge for me. And I think that um, that experience of starting from, okay, I have to create this solution um, for all these developers at Delta in a way that's scalable, in a way that's resilient and available. Um, how can I do that? So I had to educate myself, you know, um, and, and come up with like these solutions but it was a matter of like collaborating with those infrastructure teams at, at Delta at the time, getting their you know, perspective. I was very fortunate to have some um, existing employees that were part of the team that had implemented the legacy hardware that were also learning you know, on, okay, how do we implement these things? So we were really on the journey together. Um, but I, I think that that sysadmin role was very key into um, me understanding exactly the full life cycle um, and how it could be improved with DevOps and other like more process, you know, focused changes and like people focused changes. Um, yeah, in that, at that time of my career. 
Yeah, and there's other pieces in there that you've mentioned now. So things like uh, you know the QA, the test automation, so the use of continuous testing. So they, they, really, when we're looking at DevOps, it's such a, a broad um, knowledge that you have to gain, but it doesn't mean that you have to step straight in and be like, I now know CI, CD, cloud, containers, container orchestration, continuous testing, and development, and I'm an expert. What it means is you kind of comprehend the concepts that are used and you can empathize with people at each different phase, and then you can deliver that service to them to increase quality, increase speed um, in, yeah. in the various different pieces they're doing. And, and like you mentioned earlier, not just internal, it's actually whoever the customer is, whoever you're providing value to, that the maximum business value you can provide. Yep, yep, that customer journey is super important and like not boiling the ocean all at once like you said it right we started with like git and like using gitlab source like that's just source control but then that evolved into okay understanding okay as we build these things what sort of build tools do we need available okay well that means ci we have to have continuous integration now where do we do the art now where do we store these artifacts oh we need an artifact after artifact repository for this stuff so it really grew um and it, it it's like all about like understanding that full customer journey maybe at the high level like you mentioned but not necessarily thinking that you have to know each things in depth right at that time but solving for it and providing value incrementally i think is key that's it exactly it's prioritization it's thinking along the way what matters now uh, and how do we solve that problem as we go then we'll hit the next problem but while remembering that you know we're going to keep having to we still have, to have a vision of where this is going but solving yeah. things that matter most importantly at the moment and will cause the least restriction or, or friction as you move further on you mentioned um, hardware as well. So how much does hardware come into play when we're thinking about things like uh, DevOps tooling, developer experience? Um, talk to me a bit more about that. Yes. So I just mentioned that, you know, the hardware infrastructure was new for me. So I had a lot to learn. Um, and Delta was a great place to learn about it because, like, the, the scaling needs of the operations were very, very just fluid. Um, if you think about an airline, there are lots of events that require more infrastructure um, or availability in different areas. Delta at that time had just gone through um, an issue where one of the data centers lost power. So we were building up a new data center. Now we had to solve for how do we you know, use both of these in a way that provides enough availability so that we can move in between them if needed. Um, so there were a lot of challenges, not from just like implementing, you know, you know, this, this solution from a hardware perspective, but also how do I solve these like different, you know, edge cases now that were never a problem, like in a different environment. Um, so I think though, from a, an individual solution, hardware is key um, because you need to understand that as you implement, you know, faster delivery and more incremental delivery, right? There's going to be scaling. As you make it faster, people are going to commit more try and deliver more value more quickly. So making sure that you architect your solutions in a way that are easily scalable is key um, and not building yourself into a box where you have this finite set of resources and you have to just use it because that's how bottlenecks are created. Um, and also in the larger grand scheme of things, especially these days, it's important to consider how does this fit into our cloud like um, journey, right? How do I make sure that we are able to leverage, you know, these great capabilities offered by companies like AWS, GCP, because more companies now than ever are starting to use those and not build their own data centers, especially if they're wanting to like grow quickly, right? It's diff difficult to secure hardware these days. And we're all experiencing these supply chain constraints right now in the pandemic. 
how easy is it to, okay, I want to spin up a server in AWS, but if you haven't thought about those things, you're going to face difficulty. So hardware is key, and it should be a key consideration as you define your developer experience. Um, it's hard to know exactly what, you know, the world will look like five, 10 years from now, but if you stay flexible and incrementally improve, you know, and keep a mindset of, okay, let's rethink these things. What worked three years ago may not be the best solution for the next three years. So keeping that mindset, I think, um, can go a long way. Yeah, that, that scalability side there where it's like we've made a massive improvement and so everyone's able to work faster, they can commit more. Oh, wait, but now we have to handle that scale, right? We've moved to the next step straight away. Uh, and that's, that, that's a part that it, you have to really be able to, to think in the future while also trying to solve the problems of today and also trying to make sure that the teams can actually culturally understand the change that's going to happen. They're going to work in a totally different environment and that requires like the ability to change, but change feels uncomfortable. It's disruptive and it's innovative. What, what kind of um, problems have you seen with that where it's like the systems are getting better, but the people can't necessarily keep up with where that's going? How, how much time do we have? Do we have <laughs> like there? There, that's the problem, right? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the cultural aspect of like transitioning to like this new world of um, like scaling and, and moving very quickly and with velocity is, I mean, it's such like a consideration is so key, but not a lot of organizations consider this. It's really a mindset shift for an individual. And then you have the team side of things, right? There's the organizational structure that possibly changes depending on where you're coming from. The you know ops person of yesterday may not be doing the ops work of you know today. So there's so many different things that you have to consider from the cultural transformation side of this. Um, it's not an easy problem to solve. That's why I asked how much time we have. You know, some things I've seen that work are proactive education, making sure that you bring people along with your your journey towards implementing these things, so that they can have like. A le you know, a hand in delivering it, um, because when things like rain down upon teams and they just have to change, they're not quite as open, right, and understanding and accepting of these new capabilities. And another thing um, that I've seen work quite well is immersing a team in this new world. Um, it's very easy to say, hey, use this, right? But with no support, no understanding of like why we're making this change, um, you know, it's very difficult to make that mindset shift. But I've seen things like dojos work where a team is immersed for a new project, um, totally implementing it in this new world, not taking it piece by piece, but really embracing it, even though it's very difficult and, you know, it's not always comfortable as they come out. They're like, OK, maybe we, I fully understand how the pieces come together and what it means to utilize these things to deliver faster. Um, so those are a few ways I've seen it work, but definitely not an easy um, thing to solve for. It seems to me that that is one of the biggest challenges. Like, I, I, it's whether it's Delta, Twitter, whether it's big banks. Like, I, these are, I've sat with CIOs and CTOs for you know the last few years, where this consistently is the biggest problem. It's being able to keep the culture and get people to actually, like, for example, you said that get people to come on the journey and not like, oh, we're going to hire some external person to do it. Like, you can't give this to a consultant company, and if you do, you, you don't actually ever truly gain the knowledge or just hiring new people or experts isn't the way to do it. And then also putting the work on people's laps. It's actually trying to increase the accountability and responsibility, but a shared responsibility that we're doing this together. And while I might know what to do, I'm going to help you learn how to do this, facilitate your growth, and we're going to solve these problems. So Dojo being one, one solution, and I've seen that work in a few different organizations. Um, 
there's also so from what i um understand i think at delta it was more of like a center of excellence right so there was a devops center of excellence um what are some of the pros and cons that you've seen of this coe type of um way to do devops and i'll, I'll preface that a little bit where i've seen sometimes in a center of excellence that yes people think okay that's great we've got this we're learning we're growing but a lot of people then think okay now that's their responsibility and it's not ours like we, why would we worry about this devops practices devops methodologies this change way of working those folks over there take care of it and we don't necessarily need to do it or then you have a period of coaching from the coe or the coe takes care of doing things like setting up tooling and responsibility or doing some education but it seems sometimes that it's like half in half out and then other times I've seen it work where the COE is like a shared resource that everyone gets involved with, but they, they, the company, rest of the company leans into the COE and actually works with it. So talk to me a bit more about how you've seen that working and maybe some of the pros and cons and maybe compare that to what you see at Twitter as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I think that the way we defined a center of excellence at um, Delta is definitely different from what I'm experiencing at Twitter. Um, at Delta, our center of excellence um, was tasked with really driving not only the tooling component of in DevOps enablement, but also driving adoption. Now, starting off, we didn't really know what that meant, right? So we knew that there were tools that we had to implement in order to enable folks to deliver um, more quickly. Um, but we talked about it, like the cultural adoption education side of things. Those were things that you know, we didn't know what that looked like, um, especially for a company like Delta, almost 100 years old, right? Still having so many different sorts of technology mainframes, different, just different, different needs. Um, so all that had to be considered. Um, so we implemented the tooling and then worked on the educational and also cultural transformation side of things. I think the pros of having a center of excellence, um, or as you've said, the centralized support, right? And having the autonomy as a team to figure out, okay, looking at the industry, what are some things that have worked? What are some things that didn't work, right? Here's how we bring all of that together to form something that works for the Delta organization. I think that um, in some companies, you know, it could be very um, segmented where certain people own different parts of the DevOps um, pipeline and, you know, or the delivery. And it's difficult to maybe come to consensus, come to consensus drive different tooling selections because you have to integrate with a choice that another team made. There's just some like uphill challenges there. Um, we also had a great opportunity because we were the center of excellence to engage with customers um, for our, like for all of for the full pipeline, right? So we had a full understanding of what their needs were throughout that customer journey, and then we had to come together to figure out, okay, how can we address the, the majority of the use cases that presented themselves? So definite pros is having that visibility um, because if you're like segmented by personas or you don't have access to you know certain customer types, you're pretty much like solving for you know. A, a black box. You don't know what the challenges are of specific customer sets. So that was a definite, um, definite um, benefit. Um, cons, however, um, I think that it's important to structure the organization um, for success um, and, and make sure it's funded um, for success. Because I quickly realized, you know, being a part of a team that owned all of the DevOps tooling that, okay, as we implemented these tools, they were not so tightly coupled together. There were different, you know, requirements and customer needs for the specific tools, right? So for solving for the larger customer journey, we didn't have the time to dive deep into say, okay, now that we have this automated pipeline, there's a security aspect of how artifacts are stored and delivered. How do we ensure that we have 
our we provide these for our security partners visibility into that. So handling that became difficult because we were very high level in providing the tools. We didn't have that time to dive deep into it. Um, cons, I would also say, are um, just making sure that the organization, the the whole IT engineering organization is aligned on what the vision is, right? Um, so there's a lot of opinions, I think, in different organizations about what works, what doesn't work. Um, and if you are, if there's not alignment with both like infrastructure, even when it comes to how the process of, you know, developing goes, like agile, like how are we de like developing and, and organizing our work? I think that there could be a lot of rifts, right, that happen along the journey. Um, so we solve for that, but it would have been great to kind of have that alignment initially, I think. Um, yeah, so the Twitter side of things, I guess I'll um, talk through um, is it, it was definitely different as I, I moved into Twitter um, a year ago. Um, we definitely have like specific focus on the tools, which I love. Um, the core offering is like solid, right? So difference, uh, the difference between Delta is that we were just implementing that core offering. Twitter is definitely more mature in that sense, where we now can focus on the individual needs of the tools and really optimizing um, that capability for our customers, dependent on what they're trying to do. Um, very flexible, you know, we're talking to customers consistently and implementing based on what their needs are as they change, which is really great. Um, I think that sort of like, you know, uh, ability to react to customer needs is a very good thing to have in a developer experience because, you know, um, technology is constantly changing. And if a team is so gung-ho about you know, the implementation as is, and we're not talking to customers and we don't have the ability to act on their needs, it really creates like a not so good relationship. Um, and you know, teams sometimes will just solve for themselves at that point. Um, you, wanna, you want to be that partner for your customer. So um, those are some key differences, um, but I'd say COE has its place in certain organizations to get started. Um, but make sure that, you know, you evolve beyond that. Maybe a COE is good for, you know, a, a few years, uh, you know, but evolve beyond that based on what your organization needs, I think. Yeah, it's it's coming from such a, it, they, they usually are found in these large legacy companies, like you've mentioned, Delta being more than 100 years old versus, you know, what's considered a big tech company that's, uh, you know, born as a tech company. It's not just trying to catch up, even though there'll still be things like technology debt, infrastructure debt, even at Twitter, because time changes and teams grow so quickly. But like that kind of the, the initial uh, birth of a company from tech first does definitely make a change where the mindset, the agility between the teams is quite different. So we've spoken about um, briefly about developer experience. So I'd like you to kind of um, expand a bit on what DevX even is and, and why can't, let's say I, I have no idea, why can't anyone just pick any tool and use it? I wanna start working with this tool. I don't need to worry about anybody else. Why can't I just do that in, in the organization and what kind of impact would that have? Yeah, um, I, I think that Developer experience is one of those like buzzwords lately, and like it depends on who you ask and you know the maturity of their organization and what it means to them. Um, I think to me, developer experience um, is really kind of synonymous with customer experience. You know, we think about the type of capabilities we make available to our customers on the business side, 
right? But it's essentially treating your development workflow like a business to me, right? So making it easy for customers to adopt, lowering barrier to entry, um, making it like a joyful experience so they don't move to competitors, you know? And in an internal sense, it's hard to say like there's competitors because we kind of have, you know, customers, they're not locked in, but they're, you know, they, they use what's available. Um, but it really is just making sure that their experience is like joyful and their needs are met um, based on what uh, the, the core, core offering should be. Um, measuring that is not easy, but um, I won't get into that. I, th I think that tooling that supports your developer experience um, is a very, uh, should be an intentional conversation um, across both the team implementing it and the customers that will utilize it. Um, a few years ago, like someone asked me, um, it, I was on a panel about, you know, how do you pick solutions um, for tools um, this was specifically talking about um, how, you know, for cloud native development, you know, but really it's a, this, this solution is applicable for any tooling selections. And I came up with this sort of saying, A-E-I-O-U. And at the time I was teaching my daughter like how to read. So I was like, oh, well, this makes sense. And it really is like five things that you consider. Um, applicability, is it enterprise ready? Integration and see other tooling, overhead and usefulness. Um, and applicability specifically meaning that are the tools relevant for the environment and, and appropriate for your users? And you won't know that unless you talk to your users. Um, enterprise ready, I think that at Delta especially, because we were in a COE and we didn't have like the people um, to implement, you know, maybe custom solutions, we were using like off the shelf products and they had to be enterprise ready with support, right? And, you know, make sure they had their security, you know, T's crossed, dots, I's dotted, right? Um, integration, you know, we were solving for the full development workflow. So we had to make sure that all the tools work together well and that that point and moving from, you know, one, you know, from source to continuous integration was not like a, 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 a very, um, was not a bad experience, I guess, um, in that transition. Um, overhead, was is key because I had a team of six people supporting four tools, right? So how easy is it to manage that, scale that, you know, um, are there solutions that we could leverage like, you know, images instead of having to, you know, figure out what the infrastructure looked like ourselves and implement um, automation around it. Um, and lastly, usefulness. Um, so this is key. Um, I think it's easy to bring a tool into the environment but making sure that it contributes positively to the experience is, is one thing. Um, as users interact with them, what is that like? How do you, how do you um, make sure, making sure that that is a good experience for them was key too. Um, so that's kind of the, what I've always followed when making tool selections. It's a delicate balance between all of these things, um, function and experience. Um, I think that arbitrarily picking tools um, is something that, you know, some organizations choose to do for different reasons, um, but I think that when you when organizations make that choice to just pick a tool to serve as a functional um, part of the developer workflow, um, eventually, you know, there will be vocal people that it does not whose needs it does not meet, right? So considering those needs initially prevents a lot of rework, I think, right? Um, we want to be incremental, but incremental in the sense that we're working smart, right? And doing a lot of legwork up front. So that way we meet 70% of the, 70, 80% of the needs, right? And then incrementally solve for the rest. Um, so while I think that, you know, it's, it's okay if you have to rush to do it, if you can spend the time up front um, to understand your customer's needs and, and, and 
understand exactly how things come together via that AEIOU method, you should because it can be um, a much better experience for your customers. I, I like that, that method and it's cool that it came just, you said it came while you were teaching your daughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm big into like, you know, using these like easy to remember, right, things in order to like, when you consider like a framework. And I was like, oh, this makes sense. Um, and like I talked, I, I wrote down like really all the things I thought about as we were picking like these solutions. Um, and I was like, okay, this makes sense. Um, and also from a customer experience side of thing, the usefulness, applicability um, goes beyond the function, right? Because I think a lot of people get really caught up on the functions that are available, but that the experience is also a key component too. Exactly. And then, you, you know, like you said, at the end, if, if it's not useful and you're just adding in new tools, because it, it, as ridiculous as it sounds, there are organizations that are like, kind of picking what they think is just, oh, everyone else is doing it. We need this same thing. Uh, like in the kind of early days of Kubernetes where everyone was like, we need Kubernetes, but they didn't actually understand like how to use it in their environment. What was actually the goal, the true goal and how to actually best um, utilize it. So there's like, and that's just one example of many tools that people have gone around doing that. And like really the last like five, six years when like there's been a massive push for new tooling in this kind of DevOps space as well. Um, so, how has we've talked about DevOps for a little period of time, and then we've got you know that yes, some people for, for years it, it was debated what it's about, what it's we very all we very much all know now like what DevOps, how it's used, it's the methodologies, it's the practices, with some concepts, and then we stemmed into um, roles like site reliability engineering (SRE). Uh, we're even now talking chaos engineering, uh, which in a company like Twitter is probably a normal function that people have done like testing uh, the the testing the reliability and scalability and security of a system. Um, but how have you seen that change where increase in roles like SRE, chaos engineering, um, as opposed to kind of the traditional tooling focused um, operational roles, you know, combining dev as well, like DevOps? Yeah, I, I think that um, I've unfortunately not been a participant to see that like um, growth like happen, you know, just like organically. Um, I think that I've always known, like even at my time at Delta, that this is going to be a need, but that cultural shift and, you know, the roles and responsibilities, it was never quick enough. And I ended up, you know, leaving to go to Twitter where the delineation is already there, right? Between the roles, separation of concerns, so that these different roles can focus on different aspects of the delivery of value, right? And really make it the best that it could possibly be. Because I think we all know when there's so many problems, right, within the process of delivering the, you know, incremental um, software, the infrastructure, making sure that it's scalable, and then the aspect of planning for resilience, right? There's like so many priorities, and depending on who you ask on a certain day, their priority might be different. So I think that this um, is um, an awesome um, way that things have evolved, um, and SREs especially. Um, this, uh, Twitter has been my first experience having like a dedicated SRE organization. Um, taking that role outside of the standard software developer um, development team has really helped with like the resilience of their services because we have a software development team who's focused on their customer needs, right? But then they're caused to like weigh, okay, well, we need to scale, you know, or we have these technical debt items that are causing outages, right? But having SRE focused on those things and even instilling like best practices around them for entire organizations is key. Um, so I, I really like that delineation. Um, when it comes to chaos, I think that 
it's it's one of my favorite things to talk about chaos engineering because it's it's really changing the way we think about failing in my opinion right and historically i've seen you know failure you know it happens it's a bad thing how can we get better but to proactively think about what are those some of the ways that this could break i think is just an amazing shift in how teams can approach you know how we maintain our slas to our customers for availability what could we do in order to prevent these things from happening but also validating this is not going to you know take away from our availability for our customer um, is key especially in a world where you have uh, we talked about kubernetes and you know uh, deploying different um you know containers and, and and we have these large complex you know, um, deployment types now. So how do we plan for that even? A failure of one pod, you know, there's so many different permutations of failures now and chaos engineering is a great way to get ahead of all of the, um, um, to fail fast, you know, and then and then validate that you have accounted for different failure types, um, which makes a team more confident in delivering, in my opinion. So um, I, 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 I'm happy. I'm so happy that we've all these things have emerged, and especially at Twitter, to be in a place where this is being thought of um, proactively. Yeah, we're, we're in an awesome time, aren't we? Like the, the speed of everything, the efficiency, the actual quality that's being produced, um, and like it's continuing. We're all transforming and modernizing how these organizations work. Um, but something like you said, that it's really the cultural shift of being okay with failure and having a blameless culture. Uh, and looking at the system itself rather than the individual and the person. And a person brought the system down. Well, why was that person even able to do that in, within our system? Why didn't we build that in or think of it in advance? Because that's a simple uh, problem that we could have already solved. So you've mentioned that recently you've been promoted. So obviously, congrats on, on the promotion as well. That's awesome to hear. Um, and you are, you've been working your way from individual contributor um, all the way to, to leadership. So Let's talk those challenges and the lessons that you've learned along the way. Yeah, yeah. So that shift um, actually occurred at Delta. Um, I was a system administrator for two years there, um, implemented the tooling when the opportunity came for me to manage the same team that I was a part of. Um, so one of the, I would say the first challenges in this transition is letting go. Um, I had implemented these systems and tools, had a hand in, you know, um, driving adoption of them, talking to customers, um, and a large like challenge for me was letting go and saying that, okay, I can't be the expert anymore. I need to empower my team to, um, you know, take a look at these systems that I'd previously been a subject matter expert in and let me know what they think is best, um, which is difficult, especially when you're, it was my, my baby, you know, so um, I think that that was the first challenge. And um, the, the thing that helped me make that transition a little bit easier um, was lack of time. I didn't have the time to really get in the nitty gritty details of all of the systems anymore um, and really had to empower my team, um, give them my autonomy to do what they thought was best um, and support them in that. Um, so that was that was the first challenge. Um, I think the second challenge um, came sort of later in my management career um, and even more recently um, in, in the move to Twitter was changing from a more execution oriented person, which I just, that's my nature is to just do things and make sure if I think the direction is right um, and I have a path forward, I execute. But thinking like beyond that at a more high level strategic sort of method, taking the information that you have and translating that into a strategy that others execute on is definitely a mindset shift that I actually still am, you know, kind of occurring. I, I you know, I just hired 
three managers on my team. So it's a matter of enabling them to execute versus me executing. So that was another mindset shift that um, is actually still occurring. Um, so those are sort of the two main things. <laughs> That's so cool because uh, as we sit and talk, it's like um, I'm feeling and seeing things that I'm going through, which is, it's like a funny time, right? So like I, I'm a founder and CEO now and uh, I'm also good at doing and I'm good at executing. And, and especially as a founder where you start a company, it's you, right? I, mean, I was a sole founder and I had uh, Nicole join me very soon. And, and we, we were sort of the first two people in the company, but it was two or three of us for the first like four months. And then suddenly there's, there's 20 people, right? Like overnight, we've got 20 people. And, and then that continues to grow. We're onboarding like another 20, 25 people in March as part of our technology training and delivery function that we have. And um, yeah, me I'm trying to empower people, trying to step out of the way, but while being the expert at doing that exact thing. And sometimes it can be hard because you're like, well, hold on, I, I can do that. And sometimes as the leader, you might actually be better at doing that thing for a period of time, but it's not about that. And it's definitely not about our own egos. But I don't think it's always the ego that's involved. It's actually more like you just want to make sure the quality is there and it's getting done quickly. But actually, you look at the future, and many times throughout today's uh, discussion, you've, met, you've talked about like the vision and the future of where things are going. You seem to always look forward and think, okay, if I build it like this, what will it be in the future? What will be the implications of that? And so it seems like right now, it, it's if I step out of the way and empower people, and even maybe give them room to fail, and actually let them learn steadily, um, and the more that you can focus on the leadership and the management and, and doing it the right way, eventually that team is going to be more scalable and then they can continue to hire people and continue to grow as well. Yep, exactly. It's, it's looking at myself as like, I, I am a single point, right? And that's just, it's finite. I'm one person who only has so much time. So by even, as you said, stepping out of way and allowing folks to figure it out on their own, that is an op like an opportunity for um, them to grow, which in, in turn helps the team grow. So being okay with that, I think was a big shift, especially because my brain, when there's a problem automatically, what's the solution? But not being so, um, not injecting my perspective initially, but allowing, you know, to lead them on a journey to figure it out themselves and, and uh, go along that path. I think that leaders, um, it's especially powerful, especially in this day and age to be um, a facilitator of um, bringing in diverse perspectives. Right. And a lot of times that means not saying things, even if you know the answer, um, because as a leader, you know, perhaps someone has an alternative opinion. But by you implementing that first, it minimizes it a little bit. Right. And, and, and it's more it's more subject to groupthink. I think if my leader says this, maybe that's the right path. But encouraging diverse perspectives, I think, is key um, within that environment and stepping out the way, as you've said. Um, um, difficult, difficult, but it has to be done in order to um, get the results that I want to see. So. A thousand percent on that last bit that you just said, by the way, a thousand percent agree, because I've, I something I've been practicing myself all the time at the moment where we're in a group discussion and I say quiet purposely because I, I can, we can tend as a leader to be the one that speaks a lot. And I actually purposely pause if someone asks a question, I won't say the answer. We know the answer and that's fine. It's not about us knowing it because if so, someone gives their perspective, awesome. Or if you have to vote on something, who thinks this, 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 and make sure I'm the last vote. I don't want to sway people's opinions to just follow me because I'm not right. I, I doesn't mean I'm right just because I happen to be the leader of this team. It's like right. I might be completely wrong. And so I actually want to check my expectations more and more and, and, and consider that I'm consistently, the more that I'm wrong and other people are right, that's actually a good thing because then I learn and as an organization we grow. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
So, so we, we, we're relating on, on this point and we're both obviously, you know, at a stage in our life where, where we're growing, so, you know, consider continuing to improve as leaders. I can see obviously with your, your journey that you've obviously done a great job already and you have exactly uh, what's needed to continue. Um, but something that we all face is imposter syndrome. And, uh, and also, you know, you and I, I before this call have spoken about things like uh, how it is to, to maybe be the only, um, you know, for, for me being only as a mixed race person at various times in my life, uh, you know, I've always experienced that in work and in school. Uh, for you, you've mentioned uh, being only as a, an African-American woman and also, so that's the double bind of a woman in tech and also an African-American woman and also in the South. So let's talk about how you've overcome some of that, that imposter syndrome, and also kind of just getting through some of the challenges that's, that's thrown at you and, and the resilience maybe you've had to, to have to do that. Yeah, yeah, this is, um, you know, a really like sensitive topic for me. And it's something that a lot of women face, um, people of color face, um, as they really sort of go into fields where, you know, maybe underrepresented and everyone else in that field may not look like you do. And I think it's something that um, definitely it's important to acknowledge. Um, I, throughout my career, you know, I was really sort of fortunate um, in, in a way that I, I did go to school with a lot of folks that did look like me. Um, but the shifts happened once I entered that corporate world, um, especially um, going into, uh, you know, different companies that, you know, while other or like parts of the organization, lots of representation, you know, and the company clearly had um, a, a, a drive to increase diversity, the technical side of things really never reflected like the more customer facing side of things or even the, um, you know, business side of things. So um, tech was where it kind of, you know, um, kind of dwindled from a representation standpoint. And I think that the, a couple of things that I did, or, I mean, still do, these days, right, um, are really remember that I am here for a reason and I've done the work ahead of time in order, and it justifies me being here. Um, I think that very often, like me personally, I'll look at, you know, my accomplishments and things like that, you know, I'll just pass over them, you know, like I, I got promoted, oh, yay, okay, what's next, you know, it's really important to acknowledge how far you've come in the work that you've put in to get there. Because when I think about the 10 years that I've been in the industry, all of the challenges that I've had to overcome, the difficult people management side, all of the growth that I've done, it really kind of makes me feel like, yeah, I'm actually a badass. So I really should be here and I should remember that. So reminding yourself and like affirming that is key, even on a daily basis, um, as you go into meetings um, with new people, it's important to bring that because for me that increases like that confidence and in, in the things I talked about there, all of this comes from experience. So you can talk to that. I think that in areas where I've, you know, kind of felt like I didn't know enough in order to be um, confident in, in, in offering my opinion, I feel like that's where imposter syndrome comes in for me. For those moments, I make sure I take the time to do the extra work. How, what information am I missing in order to be able to offer my opinion? So with my experience, what I know, what do I need to do in order to um, inform myself enough to be able to offer that experience? And a lot of times that means talking to my team, you know, leaning on them for their experience because they know a lot of the things I don't. Um, so I find like that's super beneficial. Um, and, and a lot oftentimes allows me to um, really lift them up too, you know, so they, they are the expert in that field um, and, and do that extra work so that I feel confident in speaking to it. 
Um, I think that Twitter is one of the sort of most inclusive places that I've been to see like our like our, our GM for Cortex is a black man, you know, like that. I, I've never seen that. Like I've never seen a black woman director. I've never seen any of that. So I think that Twitter having such a diverse leadership um, and, and just a lot of representation at many different levels really helps me like feel like, okay, I can be confident because I know that the work that I put in is going to be recognized on its merit because there are people in these roles that I want to go. And so it's like, okay, it's another incentive for me to be my full self because it's, it's collecting result in my growth right here is a place where it's been facilitated for others. So I can definitely lean on that. Um, so I think that um, moving like to a company that's really diverse, really helped me kind of get out of my shell um, and, you know, having just, I don't know, just having a mindset of constantly saying that I affirm my experience, right? I am really worthy of being here has really helped a lot too. Awesome. Th thank you for sharing the, the transparency with that as well, because it's not always easy, right? Like to, to be like, I've been through certain experiences. I felt maybe uncomfortable at times. Um, and, and I see 100% what you're saying, like the intentional uh, nature and representation that's needed in companies to show it's not one race, ethnicity, gender that we need. We need every diverse perspective so that anyone regardless of where they come from or what their background is can always see someone that gives them that glimmer of support that belonging that if i have a scenario in my own real world that my culture might be different to your culture but i know someone in here gets who i am at my core and that the real me can come up can turn up at work i don't need to be someone that i'm not like i can just the work is the work and they're not looking at me for what i look like or my color or my hair or anything else right Yep. So we've hit the, the, the time for the quick, quiet questions. So uh, the first one, if you had the chance, what is the number one thing you tell your younger self on day one of their first job? Be open um, to all the possibilities um, and approach each new challenge with the mindset of, you know, you can learn from this for sure. And number two, what is the number one personality trait that you look for in future leaders? Um, empathy, um, and it's all around empathy for your team, peers, and customers, and I think it's key for leaders. I think about that one all the time. I agree with that for sure. And uh, what is the number one solution for improving diversity, equity, and inclusion in enterprise technology? So I tried to keep this in short because it's quick fire, but I think inclusion is the, needs to be the focus because procuring diverse talent i think that a lot of companies are are doing that very well but creating an environment for them to thrive needs to be a big focus and a, we, we mentioned it like making sure there's representation at all levels and support and mentorship i think is key to that yeah i, I could easily talk about that for another hour with you. so <laughs> i'll try and keep it i'll move to the next yeah. question just to save us that uh, and then the last thing i'll ask you is uh, to please name a book and or podcast that you're currently enjoying yeah so i think um as a four podcast there's this um one called therapy therapy for black girls um it's by dr joy bradford and i think that as leaders it's important to also consider your personal um, side of things is, is, is as an empath it's easy to take on a lot right so remembering and considering that i need to take care of me too um it's a great reminder for that book i'm reading the culture code right now which is really about creating an environment for 
a highly successful group team, right? It just talks about best practices and ways to facilitate growth for your team um, and lifting them up. Um, so those are the two ones that I'm on. Awesome. Uh, Jasmine, thank you so much. Uh, this has been such a good conversation. It's like, I can just see and hear the, like the, the focus and level of like, you, you know, when you're, when you're speaking to like a high performer and they just get it, like the, your responses, the well thought out nature of it all. And just like the way you articulate everything. It's just amazing. I, I know for sure this, this episode is going to get a ton of good responses. So I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you so much. And, and I appreciate the opportunity. Um, big supporter of the work that you and the company are doing. Um, and yeah, wish you the best of luck in all the future endeavors that you have. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the DevOps Diversity Podcast. I've been your host, Connor Dellenbank, and this episode has been brought to you by Strategio. As a reminder, if you're looking to break into tech or if you're looking for a new strategy to increase DEI while fighting the war on talent, connect with us to discuss talent creation as a service at infostrategio.tech or follow us on any of your favorite social media channels. You can also give us a like or thumbs up and share this episode with any of your friends or colleagues if you enjoyed it. Thank you so much.